Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 1, The Coolest Game You've Never Heard Of, recorded at Metatopia 2012 by Jason Morningstar. Presented by James Ernest, Kenneth Height, Jason Morningstar, Cam Banks, Ethan Pauletta, and Brennan Taylor. So this panel is uh, the coolest game you've never heard of? Right. And that's what we're here to talk about. Games that influenced us, or maybe we should start it with game that influenced each of us. Uh, since there's six of us. Since there's six of us. <laughs> and uh, take it from there. Uh, I did a, uh, an informal survey and asked uh, sort of the universe what games, uh, specifically in my, in my case role-playing games, influenced them, and maybe we can run through that at some point. But uh, something that, uh, that uh, we thought would be interesting and fun to do would be to... Uh, sort of uh, winnow down in obscurity until we get to ultimate gamer hipster-ism uh, by, <laughs> by, uh, by name-checking games and asking for a show of hands. And maybe we'll do that when we get to the uh, role-playing portion yeah. of this. But why don't we start with, uh, with uh, one game that uh, is cool, that is reasonably obscure, and that was influential to you, and that maybe deserves more credit or more publicity than it, than it, uh, it gets. Sound good? Sounds good to me. You guys yeah. sound with that? Yeah. yeah. You want to start, James? Hello everyone, I'm James Ernest. I invent games. Um, I don't, I, the only thing I brought to this was Pitch. Has anyone played Pitch? Probably not. It's a trick-taking game. It's a card game. Um, it's one of a large family of trick-taking games like Hearts and Spades, and this particular one is Cutthroat Variant. Any number of players, you do not deal out the whole deck, and not all the points are always out. So it's risky to make a bid in that game. And what I think I learned about that, which I've only recently figured out that I learned from playing pitch, was that it has a conservative strategy, which is never to bid and get one point every now and then, and an aggressive strategy, which is to bid a lot and sometimes lose points uh, because it's hard to make those bids. And neither one of those is a dominant strategy, so it's possible to play either way and enjoy the game. And I try to do that with games that have randomness in them to give players a choice of jumping on the crazy train or not and having neither one of those choices be a dominant strategy. So you should play pitch and I'll teach you this weekend if you like. <coughs> Hello, Ken Height. Hello, Jason. Uh, I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a game designer uh, almost entirely in the role-playing space, but I hope springs a turn. I guess I will, in the uh, interest of medium obscurity <laughs> and total clarity of uh, influence, give uh, an early shout-out to Elizabeth uh, Shoemaker Sampet's blowback, which influenced me so strongly that I ripped the beating heart of it out and put it almost uh, intact into Knight's Black Agents as the Vampyramid, which is the algorithm <coughs> by which the vampire conspiracy strikes back against the uh, agents, the player characters. Uh, in her uh, game, it was a decision tree for the GM to use to determine the um, uh, uh, degree of pressure that is put on the players. The, the blowback is a game of burned spies. It's basically burn notice, the role-playing game. And the, uh, the GM adds pressure to force the conflicts that, that make the game happen. And so in blowback, that uh, mechanism, which she calls the push pyramid, is the actual motor that drives the, the, the entire uh, system of play. In my game, it becomes an, a sort of an auxiliary uh, component that adds a, a sort of dramatic uh, realism 
in the sense that it is not actually realistic. If you anger a globe-spanning conspiracy, they send the Russian mafia to burn down your house and shoot you as you come out the door, and that's the end of you. But in a, in a thriller, there is a long series of steps that a global conspiracy uses to mess with you before doing that, by which time it is too late because you have uncovered enough to not be standing around while the Russian mafia pours accelerant all over your uh, CD collection. So the... Um, but but what, it, uh, what it does for her is it drives the entire structure of the game. My game already had a, a, a structure driven to it, but what it needed was a uh, component by which you can measure and create a counterattack. And uh, Blowback uh, provided me with that. Uh, like I say, almost uh, entirely intact. And uh, so it's not particularly obscure, especially to, I suspect, people in this room or this game design space. But it is uh, enough, I guess, to get me past this opening round. <laughs> Jason. Jason. <laughs> it's an illumination. So my name is Jason Morningstar, and uh, the game that I, if I only get one to talk about, I'm going to talk about one that if you know me well, I talk about all the time, which kind of invalidates the obscurity component of this. But if you, maybe if you don't know me well, you haven't heard me gush about this, but it's a game called Bunnies and Burrows, which was published by Fantasy Games Unlimited in 19, <coughs> 1976. So think about 1976 and think about what uh, fantasy role-playing meant in 1976, and then look at Bunnies and Burrows, which must have been in development in 1975, right? Mm, at least. Um, and uh, it, it is an amazing artifact, and it's been hugely inspirational to me, not necessarily because it's tremendously groundbreaking anymore, but in 1976, it sure as hell was. Um, uh, the, uh, the author's uh, clearly had uh, been influenced by the only game in town, really at that time, which was Dungeons and Dragons, uh, but they wanted to make uh, the Watership Down role-playing game. And so from, from that traditional fantasy core, they sort of bricolaged all these components that allowed them to make this visionary game that, that met their requirements. So there are rules for your sense of smell. Uh, there are rules for uh, a, 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 a vast ecosystem of languages there are rules for fighting that are uh, tremendously detailed uh, and uh, involve uh, combat matrices in a way that you, you don't really see until the 80s in, in some cases, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, so these guys had something, had a vision for something they wanted to do and essentially created uh, an indie game around uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons' bones, uh, which is fabulous. And if you want to look at a copy, I have a copy with me, and I'd be happy to let you paw through it. Uh. I'm Brennan Taylor. I'm uh, also a relatively indie game designer. And uh, I brought along one that this is about five or six years old. It's a game called Dirty Secrets. It is a uh, game about uh, noir detective investigation. And it is a, what I would call as a genre emulator. <clears throat> because what what story you get out of the game is like a noir. Because what it does is it makes uh, it makes your detective get beat up a lot, but still find things out. Because at the end of every scene, you're guaranteed to find something out, whether you did anything or not. You'll find out more. Uh, but there's always violence involved in almost every scene, and you gradually 
just get beat up by everybody in this story. Uh, the other thing that I think is super cool about it is that it is uh, it's it's a single player game. So one person plays the investigator, and everybody else takes basically a rotating GM role, which they call the authority in this game. Um, but there's a uh, a little grid, and you move a token around on it. And every time it gets moved at the end of each scene, a name gets added to the grid. Until finally, you're unable to move your token without landing on a name. And when that happens, that person that, that is written in the space is the person who committed one of the crimes that's been specified during the game. So even though there is a GM and uh, you know the, the rest of the group serves the purpose of the GM, they also don't know who did all of this stuff. So... What you avoid with that, with a lot of detective games, is you you know there's there's no right answer. You don't. You, everybody in the game is trying to create uh, characters that could possibly have committed any of these crimes, because you never know which one it's going to land on. Which uh, you know, Jason earlier we when we played we played this this afternoon, and Jason was uh, he was ready to flip the table. I was. <laughs> he had a character that he became very attached to, but his name was on the grid, and I'm like, you can't be you can't be attached to him. He not was being a, a good criminal. guy. He was not a good guy. He was, he was a on good the guy. guy. <laughs> he was on the grid. He was compromised. Good, good guys commit plenty of crimes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, and I guess what I would say the the thing that influenced me about this is this. The, uh, Seth Ben Ezra, who's the guy who designed this game, was like, I want to create a noir game, and he did this this whole mechanic, everything about it is to make this feel like a noir story. Like a detective story, uh, Marlowe, you know, style, running around, getting punched in the face by thugs. And it, it absolutely does that. <laughs> yeah. There was so much face punching. Well, there was a lot of face punching. <laughs> in order to find out the answer. And, and the interesting thing to me, we, so the three of us played with a young woman uh, earlier, and she oh, very clearly is, is not immersed in the noir genre at all. And I think that she was sort of kind of working against it in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. But the game would not let her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turned into a noir story despite her best efforts. <laughs> That's a sign, I think, of a pretty solid design. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the thing is, that, you know, this came out, uh, I think, like 2007, and I was really impressed with it then. I've been talking about it ever since, but nobody ever listens to me. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to bring it up. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Uh, I'm Nathan Pletta, um independent designer, self-publisher as well. Uh, again, maybe not too low on the obscurity meter for this crowd, but uh, I'm going to talk about Inspectors by Jared Sorensen, which is probably the game that has influenced me the most as a designer. Um, If you're not familiar, um, it's essentially uh, Ghostbusters meets the dot-com bubble and burst um, game where you play a franchise of the Inspectors who are supernatural investigators going out to solve mysteries and uh, have terrible things happen um, in the process. Uh, And it's just incredibly uh, elegant. Every rule is there very specifically for a very specific purpose. Um, Without any one of the pieces of the structure, the game wouldn't work. Um, And there's nothing extra. There's nothing there that you uh, could take out without throwing it off balance and, and changing how the game plays out. Um, I think it's incredibly subversive in many ways to have uh, 
role-playing games have traditionally been framed uh, both for <coughs> as an activity and also as an interaction of a GM and a group of players, um, and also just turns a lot of the kind of standard role-playing game tropes on their heads about, like, your character does not advance, the franchise advances. Um, your character does not improve, they... Uh, they, they have to work with the uh, their, their other the other characters to to gain back what they lose in a session, um, and then players can. And it was one of the early games that really strongly put a put a put a, a non GM player in a place where they can say, "Hey, uh, through a confessional mechanic, uh, hey, here's something that happens um, in the fiction that." I'm throwing out there, It's you, no one can change it, and it's going to drive the story in a certain way because uh, I see this thing happening in our characters' lives. Um, and yeah, it's just a wonderful game. It's one of my favorite games. And it's probably, Is there a game before that even has that confessional mechanic? I think it's the first one. I don't know. I mean, other people have more deep knowledge of the, of the industry, um, but to my knowledge. To my knowledge is the first. Because it was like yeah. 2002? It was very early in the yeah. indie movement. I think, yeah. yeah. It was very much in line with the reality TV shows. Right, so. that was the other kind of trend that was coming up at that time. And that was a big part of the show success, having that, that interview part. So yeah. Really good to cut on my... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, very powerful tool in the game. Oh, it's I mean, amazing. It's, yeah. it's amazing it's just brilliant. it works, right. Because you're, you're, uh, it's. I mean, it's a very, very much a sort of player-authored uh, game, right. anyway. But, but when you're in the confessional, you're you're revealing information, right. Right, right? That that becomes relevant to the whole game. So it's not self-indulgent at all, right. and it's often. Just and there's a carrot too, because you offer another player, uh, uh, like, hey, if you if you're, you can tag another character with a trait, and if the player acts towards that trait, then you get a you know more, more uh, dice at the end of the game, and it's a little like. Hey, if you want to, so you can try and kind of push other people's characters in certain ways, but they don't have to take it. So it's like not particularly uh, uh, too pushy about it, I guess. Cool. Uh, I'm Cam Banks, and I'm a game designer, also creative director of Nightwatch Productions right now, uh, mostly responsible for Marvel Heroic Role Playing. Um, there's been a lot of games. Uh, I grew up in New Zealand, and I ran a game store, a comic book store, for several years, and before I came to the states. And the thing I used to like about that was we, at one point, we had ordered a whole lot of games in the catalog, thinking someone's going to want to have these games somehow. And this was in the '90s um, when there were a lot of weird small games that no one played, and we kept on our shelf for a long time. And so if they're there every day after day, and I'm staring at them. I eventually read them, and then I start finding out there's more to just RPGs than D and D. But um, I would say, but the, the game that I am most strongly influenced by, and always loved more than any other game, is King Arthur Pendragon uh, by Greg Stafford. And uh, to the to just by looking at the game itself, you'd think it's just like a basic role playing <laughs> mod. It's not that different mechanically speaking. If you want to put it that way from Kaiser say Call of Cthulhu or RuneQuest. They took a percentage <coughs> and made it D20s instead, right? The, the thing is, though, that this game uh, befuddles people. It makes people really upset and mad and angry and, and, and laugh and cry and all kinds of things that they wouldn't have done before maybe playing RuneQuest unless they were really motivated. The thing that I like about it, though, is, is that what gets that to people is its use of really tight constraints. It doesn't let you play a thief or a magic user well until later on, but 
the, the game is about playing a knight, and you don't just play, you know, mercenary knights or anything. You actually usually play a knight who's got a lord, who has obligations, maybe has vassals of his own, and so on. And you're on land, and you, you get older. Um, but you have not just the constraint of being a knight, you have these personality traits which tell you how you act in many ways. They have a score just like a stat does. It's one of the earliest games I know that really just had a big section on the character sheet with emotional <coughs> personality type stats on it. Um, I think Griffin Island had a rough early version of this uh, in RuneQuest, um, but this was the first time it was really rolled out to be a sort of full featured part of a character. Um, that was really cool because you could have a character who has 16 in Valorous and 4 in Cowardice and they were paired up both ways, you know, so that you uh, you would be playing a Valorous character and if you said, that's a really large looking dragon, I don't think I want to fight that, uh, well, I'm sorry, you do probably want to fight it because you've got a 16 in Valorous. You're famous for being Valorous. This is what you do, it's a dragon, you're a knight, fight the dragon. And these are passions. Then yeah, it's yeah. passions. Yeah. Oh no, passions are something else. Passions are things like love of my wife, oh, right. uh, to my lord, oh, and honor. They're similar, but the problem with the passions is you can get inspired by them to get better bonuses, but if you fail the roll, you go crazy. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, you might say, okay, uh, uh, I'm totally infatuated with Guinevere, she's the queen, but she allows this because it's you know, they're in court. So, okay, uh, I'll make my roll to see if I'm inspired. Oh, I blew my roll. I am now totally nuts, and I'm going to go screaming out into the middle of the woods somewhere and not come back for three days. Uh, that kind of thing happens, and people, I think, um, I'm very interested in this idea of play agency and why we are okay with our characters being hurt and killed and knocked off and <coughs> character, but we're not okay with having our character told they're insane or having them told that they're uh, deeply in love with this character. This is a really visceral point for many people. So if you're told, uh, well, you are going to run away from this fight because you have a, you, you rolled your cowardly check and you succeeded. You failed your Valorous team. The game is telling you you do this, and you're like, "Well, look, role play." Says I decide, not in pen range. You can you can make decisions at certain points if your stats are in the medium range. But once you become famous for something, you're expected to be doing that, and your stats will change a little bit up and down the more you do that. So eventually, if you keep doing this, you will be the bravest guy in the whole kingdom uh, with a twenty Valorous and never turn away from a fight, no matter what. But you get, you know, killed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, and I think that's, a, I love that. I, I'm, I've been inspired by the idea of having emotional and non-physical stats uh, ever since. I think it's one of the things that I like most about that game. So. I think Pendragon is not so much the game you never heard of, but then the game you never realized did all that stuff before all the other games did. Right, yeah. True. It, it, yeah, it's like watching Casablanca and being like, yeah, this is nothing but a bunch of cliches. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, right. oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. <laughs> and it does, uh, it does generational play really well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's just a ton of things in there that, uh, that make it so far ahead, like you said, with Bunnies and Burrows. Sweet package. And if you start now looking back, you think, like we were saying, Wow, whatever. Yeah. This game over here has all that stuff. What's, what's good? What does this game bring to the table that other things I've already played don't? Right. Well, if you had played it back in the 80s and 90s, it would, it would it was the only game that did these things. Right. Yeah. And it holds up well. Yeah. It does, actually. Yeah, yeah it's a, a fifth point one edition now, or something. Uh, I ran a campaign. Uh, I moved it from the core base area of uh, Salisbury to Camellia, where the other grandson's daughter, Guinevere, 
operate. You don't cover that area a lot in the in the story of Mallory because he's you know he goes there, gets a wife, comes back. You know, <coughs> I wanted to start that game off there, and I ran it for um, through the Great Pendragon campaign as a basis, but moved it, uh, and it lasted for uh, several months. And really engaging kind of play because you're watching your character get older and then having to deal with more stuff, and like I said, go crazy once in a while. Uh, the game is one of those ones where failure really is awesome because uh, it, it happens a lot. You whiff rolls quite a lot in the game, you know. But they give you these options that make such great story potential as when you fail, that I think that's also appealing. So. <coughs> what are we going to talk about now? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Jason, do you have you a plan, Jason? Do you want to run through your list? <laughs> You're in the middle. Uh, that you wanted to oh, do you want to do your list? Sure, yeah. yeah. All right, okay. So, like I said, I pulled the internet, and this is what the internet told me. When I, when I asked what were uh, games that were underappreciated and over-inspirational. <laughs> uh, so is this, are we going to play bingo with this list? Or should we play, just want to run through it? it should we play bingo? Yeah. If everyone's heard about it and played it, it's off the list. Okay, so, sh- so sh- show of hands if they... It doesn't count if you're on the panel. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so is this a uh, show of hands if you are familiar with this game? Yeah, and if most people are, yeah. we might just... We'll, we just can just sort of skip over it. We'll skip over it. Oh, I don't, we, we're we're not going to discuss it. There's too many. Right. Yeah, there's yeah. a ton of them here. My question, okay. though, is, is there's obviously a difference between being aware of it and then playing it, right? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, but if you played this game, let's go with that. That's gonna, let's get, that's a filter that's going to reduce, mm. uh, reduce this by a lot. Uh, and I think then the panel can participate. Oh, okay, right. Because some of these no one's played. Um, uh, how we came to live here? Anybody? A couple people? All right. Gray Ranks? A couple people. Summerland? Nobody's I've played? Read it. Yeah, I've read it. <laughs> I've read it. It's well regarded. The Collector's Burning House. There's a couple people back there who like it. Who played it. Um, uh, Everway? Some people played Everway. Dream Park? A bunch of Dream Park players. Awesome. Annalise? Yeah. Uh, and remember, these are these are just sort of random friends of mine who said that's a game that was influential and that doesn't get enough love. Uh, so this is a, a biased sample, and make of it what you will. Uh, Legends of Illyria. Nobody's played Legends of Illyria. Black Fire. I don't even know what it is. Sorry, Clover. Oh, I think I know. Lisa, you never played Clover. For her kids. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, versus monsters. Oh yeah. Uh, Ganakagak. Yeah. A bunch of Ganakagaks in here. Clustering over here. Yeah, <laughs> Primitive. Yeah. You better raise your hand, Kelly. Yeah, <laughs> I know you've played it. <laughs> Which versus monsters was influential? That would be awesome. Yeah. I don't think it is though. <laughs> <laughs> I think you. I think you are the the, the, the recipient of a practical joke. <laughs> I mean, it deserves to be, but I don't think it has. Ooh, well, this would be influential to one person. The one guy, right? Yeah. That, that guy yeah. was and who's, just who's apparently Ken. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did you forget your answer? <laughs> Any game by Joe McDonough? Um, no, uh, monster Hunter. not Monster Hunter. <laughs> no, but, but uh, his game's Ribbon Drive, Quiet Ear, Perfect, all made this. Oh, yeah, Ribbon Drive is terrific. Yeah, multiple yeah. ways. Oh, The Final Girl? Anybody? A couple people? Awesome. Uh, Unsung? You've played Unsung. Oh, I haven't played it. 
Sit down. Any game by Clint Crosby, uh, Don't Walk in Winter Wood, Urchin, Roanoke. I played Roanoke. Roanoke, yeah. Roanoke, for sure. Uh, uh, this is a good one. It's a Swedish game called Mutant Inheritors of the Apocalypse. What? That's absolutely interesting. Yes. Yes. Run Robot Red. You played? I have. Cool. Good deal. Uh, that is a. Uh, That's okay. a terrific game. It's, it's a terrific game. game. Uh, Dark Space. You, you are the grognard of the room. It's a Monty Cook game. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it all yeah. monster in space? Oh, that was, oh yeah. Del Harrison. Yeah, he's playing. What is that? that one you know, from uh, Iron Crown? Yeah. 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 Iron Crown. Yeah. yeah, I own it. I just haven't played it. Yeah. 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 Uh, the yeah. Wormwood Supplement for Rifts. A couple of people. Okay. <laughs> Good deal. Uh, Secrets of Zaran. You're going to just raise your hand for all of these, <laughs> Rob. So. Yeah. Rob Donahue in the back of the room, who gave me many of these. Um, Jag's Wonderland. Maybe? Thank you. A couple <laughs> people, maybe. This is drug induced haze. Archipelago? That could be Jack's Wonderland, sir. So, a couple Archipelago people. Sandman, Map of Halal. Old school! Yeah, good deal. That was a deeply odd game. We should talk about that. Map of what? The Map of Halal. He's sticking out his face. So the entire world. You can just borrow the most money. It's written that way. Some some joker said Dune. Nine worlds. Yeah. Kagamatsu. All right. Whispering Vault. Seriously? Only two people have played Whispering Vault in here? That's crazy. Does it count as the GM's witchcraft ghost? It's on my shelf. No. I don't think anyone wants to play it. No, this is all about playing. If you've played this, Richard. I I just find it odd that, I mean, Whispering Vault is like the quintessential beer and pretzels Steve didn't show up game, right? I mean, because it literally takes no thought. As long as everyone has seen Hellraiser, you, you're, you're playing it now, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, we how you, 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 you didn't know we were playing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A few more influ- influential, under underloved. Mm. Uh, did I say Heroes of Olympus yet? No. no. Heroes of Olympus. I actually have that one. Right on. <laughs> Weapons of the Gods. Own it, love it, was influenced by it, but haven't played it. Spellbound Kingdoms. I got a lot of love in my survey. It's a great game, but no one's nobody's played it. Played it. Uh, uh, the Future King, which is a Tom Moldvay game. I own it. Owning doesn't count. <laughs> uh, I signed it into my dissertation. That kind of counts. That might count. <laughs> That's a half point. That's seriously. If you say your dissertation, you can raise your hand. Uh, underground? Oh, oh, oh right there. There we go. Okay. That's one that a number of people have played. Time Ship? Oh, yeah. This is another one that a Swede recommended. The game is terrible, but I've played it. <laughs> uh, great Orc Gods? Nope. I not played it. Gangbusters? Oh, yeah. I, I want to say that I've played Gangbusters. I, I, again, I... I don't believe that that has influenced anyone. No. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's the new hotness in the cool yes. indie kids circle. Yeah, it's, it's awful. Some, some guys said. They say... No, that, that, that game makes Boot Hill look like frickin' uh, Dogs in the Vineyard. 
Now we get some top secret. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so uh, four, uh, four or five more. Uh, Danger Patrol. Yep. Yes. Cult. Yes. Oh, Cult yeah. players. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Puppet Land. Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, Wild Strawberries. It's brand new. You probably haven't heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Thou Art But a Warrior. Yep. Okay, so that's that was my internet role playing games nice. that are influential but obscure. I almost said cult for the game that I was instead of because that, uh, yeah, would have been on a short list. One of the funny things about that game, and this is what struck me most when I when it came out, that was kind of the, the White Wolf period when it was cool to have horrible games that were full of scary stuff, but they really just decided to go completely. Yeah, you know, balls to the wall. Yeah, cult made white wolves look like the boys in the locker room. This was right. the hardcore. They had a thing on the back saying it was for mature audiences. Yeah. We, and we had to put it in a plastic bag in a store, and so kids couldn't see like people with like knives to their heads and blood and horrible naked things. Uh, but but what, what I liked about it was the entire mythos about it was totally different from what otherwise had been seen in other horror games. Right. <coughs> the whole thing was based on something, and that's the first thing that I thought of when I saw the movie The Matrix. Was oh my god! This is yes. like the cold movie, but without the horrible, scary gore. You know, because the whole idea is that our world is an illusion, and if we pierce the illusion, see what's really behind it. Instead of seeing, you know, lots of shaved head people with robots, we see like unknowable, horrible, sort of vaguely cabalic type demon angel things. And so, uh, yikes! But uh, I think it was there because we wanted to see if anyone wanted to buy it and just sort of suck it up and try this out. And no one ever did. <laughs> they were so scared of it. But this is New Zealand back in the you know early nineties, so it's all very common. Again, the cult uh, mechanically wasn't all that. No. It was. Uh, it was. You know, it certainly was was well produced. I mean, it was graphically beautiful in all the editions. And Swedish. The black and white one was phenomenal looking. Okay. Uh, and obviously, it's sort of stark. Uh, well, stark is maybe the wrong adjective, but it's hardcore uh, Gnosticism was better than the washout Gnosticism that you get with a lot of other uh, properties. But as, as a game qua game, I wouldn't put Cult on a list. I wouldn't even, and I wouldn't even call it that influential, frankly. Because I think virtually everyone who's done anything in the game space with Gnosticism has come at it through one of the 150,000 other treatments of Gnosticism <laughs> as opposed to via Cult. I mean, I, I'm sure someone somewhere has been influenced by it, but I, I, I would love to see the math. I want to see the paperwork on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I think that I was influenced in a way by this game because I, I did. I've, I've, I've run games, homebrewed ones that are sort of somewhat. As a as a designer, though. Yeah. Well, but I haven't written anything that you publish and say this is my inspired by cult game, because you're right. The mechanics were just like someone had tried. To, someone in Sweden had said, "Let's go with what I like most, which is Call of Cthulhu," mm-hmm. and mess with it a lot. Yeah. And do other kinds of things. And, uh, Let's break BRP, which can't be done, but <laughs> let's at least make it very tiresome. Well, the thing about cult that stood out for me were two things. One was the idea that the perfect mental balance was zero. The darker you got, the crazier you were. The lighter you got, the more like the angels you got, the crazier you were. You could just pass better. The other thing they did that was good is in character generation, they looked at the characters balance over time, saying, now if you look at this, the people who knew him in college would have thought he was this whacked out lunatic, whereas if they knew him 20 years later, he was this stable family man, and then 10 years later, all the bad shit's happening to him. So the idea that you could generate that from the mental balance alone was pretty good. Um, the question I have is, 
I know everyone has heard of Over the Edge. It is cool. It, it generated a lot of stuff. It is influential. But how many of us have played it recently? Over the Edge. Hands well, up. Recently or ever? ever. Recently. Let's start. Ever. Let's say ever. 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 Give it a try. Like lots. You know. Yeah. I, I, I ran it for my wife. Anniversary edition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if they missed their timing on the anniversary edition because uh, five, ten years ago, oh my god, yes. Now I turn to fate first because. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel okay speaking. <coughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll open the episodes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and hugely influential on fate. I can. Very, very, very concrete. <laughs> um, but no, it, it honestly it actually still holds up in a few ways mechanically that other things don't. Uh, the just simple gimmicks like making you draw your character, the necessity of having a physical descriptive element for each character element, um, the take a penalty die if you describe the same combat action two rounds in a row. They're just little things, but they really pay off. It's also, for, at least for me, the first book that I ever encountered the idea of you know, how about the GM tells the players all the secrets, and then everyone goes along with it, uh, with their characters. Not right. So it's transparency? Yeah. So, I mean, and, this, and this was actually Robin Laws' little bit of the book. And it, this was, I thought I was in college, it was the first time I saw this. I'm like, this is crazy talk. Who would do this? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about it, you often talk about it in the context of how it broke you. Yes, yeah. totally. Uh, all the assumptions you brought. Yeah. It, 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 it was the game that said to me, oh, you can do it all in an index card. The, the the fun thing about the book was it was full of weird little bits. Like it wasn't the original version. Um, I don't remember how much it was changed for second edition. But uh, there was a little thing where he said, "By the way, uh, famous Ames was a famous uh, Dave, no, but whatever cookies, uh, horrible Ames, famous Ames. They're, they're terrible, horrible. Don't ever have them. They suck, and I don't like them very much. It's just a little like a sidebar. Talking about how he he, he had some and didn't like them." So, one of the takes the time out of his game writing to say, uh, I hate the cookies. <laughs> Carry on his page, you know. <laughs> I was like, oh, so, they're very uh, odd and quirky. Oh, right, there's influential mechanically and there's influential tonally. Yes. Stylistically, well, a lot of that was, I, I, think, I, I think that was a lot of that, um, uh, that, that sort of circle that was uh, Jonathan Tweed. Uh, Greg Stolze, John Tynes, Robin Laws, <laughs> yeah. that all came out of that same, Along you know, sort of, uh, mm -hmm. well, that also, but I, them specifically, that, those days, that group that came out of yeah, yeah. But, but they were, um, uh, they were all running games for each other and riffing off of each other tonally in that way, and when you read, um, the, when, even when you read Delta Green, you get that same sort of Occasional well, aside, and... If you go to Nexus, uh, yeah. the Infinite City, which was the precursor to... Uh, way, yeah. in many, many ways, uh, that is the same kind of thing. Yeah. We are a place full of everything, a kitchen sink mm -hmm. setting with strangeness. Um, similarly, in both games, the rules kind of were like, okay, here's the rules. Now we're going to have a huge setting stuff, and more of the rules or more of the bits that are fun are going to be in the setting in a way that's so intrinsically tied in that you can't almost take them out. You can take the rules that are over the edge and run sure. a game, which is what they did yeah. for the open license thing, but th it, that's not the appeal. The appeal is, is out well, of I, I Well, I mean, it, it is the appeal. I mean, the, the warp system basically spawned, among yeah. other things, Rysis, which has yeah. a huge online following. Um, uh, and I, tons of people were appealed to by the warp right. system. I mean, um, as a, well, I think that's what's great about it, is that really it's, it's a twofer. Yeah. I mean, that was a very influential setting, and it was a very influential system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. 
and that's awesome and um, deserves to be. He also actually did a really good job of breaking down what makes role-playing games interesting, certainly role-playing games at the time was this thing, in the GM advice. And the GM advice is its own sort of textbook. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially at the time, that was, I mean, at that point, Vampire was still reasonably fresh. And that was, that totally rounded the corner. The supplement, the Cavaps uh, supplement, where the Toku likes, yeah. is so, like, psychedelic, it's weird. <laughs> That's the whole, the whole supplement was just like, just nuts. And uh, I think that if you had, if you had already been influenced somewhat by the tone and aesthetic of the rule book, and you got that book and you started going off, then you're totally on board, I think, at that point. Kool-Aid drunk. Oh, it was. Somehow that didn't end up on my, my sheet. <laughs> Talk to us about Tales from the, oh, the Floating Bag. I will make the assertion that was influential. To whom? To at least enough people who read it, because that was one of the first games I've ever seen, and I think I'm not the one who influenced this way, to use cinematic logic mechanically. Mm-hmm. That was the game that introduced sticks as its mechanical thing, and mm-hmm. it included things like you would have powers that did not have any game world logic, they had the fictional baseline. Yeah. If you had a tren- trench coat that you pulled things out of, that was the rule. You had, that was your stick. You had the trench coat stick. You could find things. But wouldn't that have been defined by tune? Yeah, and less so by floating back Also, I'm fairly sure the tune had orders of magnitude more copies printed than the yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. But Tales of the Floating Vagabond inspired at least two or three LARPs. Tales of the Floating Vagabond Number two, and then number three, the quest to make sure number two never happened because everybody didn't want to remember that. I mean, again, I'm not saying no one was ever influenced no, by Tales. I just, I, I would like to know whom and in what specific way. And I'll totally buy it Yeah. So, if we're going to do 80s stuff, how about the uh, 80s Ghostbusters game? <laughs> Well, the 80s Ghostbusters game, first of all, anyone who doesn't know that that's influential needs to go back to right. the early... But I do think it's obscure. I don't yeah. think that a lot of people remember it. Right, yeah. That is, that is the really obvious game. It's like yes. grand name of all... Yes, the, the game that invented the dice pool system, I think we can right. call yes. that <laughs> influential. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but, the, but the thing about uh, the 80s games, I thought the direction you were going was Torque, which was oh, yeah. taking cinematic logic to, uh, to really the sort of graduate school level. And not that long after Floating Vagabond came out. I mean, that was like two or three years, if that. And there may have been a connection there, because I know that the people who were Floating Vagabond uh, sort of writers or hangers-on, some of them were tangentially involved with West End. So there may or may not have been a a connection there. But but for me, if you say game that introduced shtick or narrative logic in the 80s, my first answer is going to be Torg, just because... That was the whole point of the game, was yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you pick your narrative logic and fight, <laughs> which was phenomenal. Yeah. How about games that uh, influenced you negatively? Like, well, I mean... Never do this again, oh my god, it's a brilliant source. Oh yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely, you could, you could look at, at games like, um, uh, well, like I was talking about Gangbusters, when you when you look at a game like that and you say, this is awful, this, is, <laughs> this sucks all the life out of the thing it's attempting to emulate it, it, it leaves it leaden and tiresome it doesn't let you do anything that a game like this should uh, it, it even makes shooting people with a Tommy gun boring which is ridiculous it, it, so you look at a game like that and you say no that should not be the way that I design a game but first of all it's kind of ridiculous to pick a game like that because you know even something like Gangbusters or the Morrow Project I don't hold it and say 
you know, if I design this, cut my hand off to your, um, uh, your <laughs> you just say, eh, and toss it aside. Yeah, I, mean, no, I think that's, that's they're, they're, You've only got so much space in your head for game right. mechanics, and remembering terrible ones is hardly... Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm negatively influenced by yeah. stuff. Generally, I just ignore it. Damage. Right? Yeah. Well, your brain damage by it. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> Funnily enough, I think that the games I don't like is not the mechanics that turn me off, and there's something about the way that they've been presented. Or that, that's often the case. Yeah. I mean, there's games like uh, there's an Australian game. New Zealand is an Australian like this. Um, the, the game is called Super Squadron. It came out years ago and was released in. Obviously, Australia came to New Zealand and made it come to here. I don't know. It's dreadful, dreadful, awful superhero game. Um, but it, with a, you could probably have played it just fine, I assume, because there are lot, lots of bad games, as you can say. But this game had horrible levels of creep going as you're reading the book, getting more and more creeped out by the guy sort of writing something a little bit more creepy and then more creepy. And finally, like every single picture is something a little bit more transgressive into realms of, I don't want to read this book anymore. Which, that is the thing that gets me, is that uh, if I have a game which I could probably work the mechanics out and figure it out, if I can't even get there, that's my problem. So I don't think the negative influence is like, maybe make your game so that you don't have people just stop reading them. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not, I'm not sure you needed to read Super Squadron to know that. <laughs> well, should I have people be unable to finish my game or not? I'm just saying, no. Speaking of New Zealand games, though, a game that did actually influence me, albeit through its GURPS incarnation, was Goblins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the original? And that I, I've seen the original. I haven't uh, seen it in detail, and, and not in nearly as much detail as I've read GURPS Goblins, which is a terrific uh, book if you ever find a copy of it. I don't know how well it compares to the original, but... Uh, well, the original was the kind of game where someone had made it, the guys had created mm-hmm. it, they photocopied it off, and it was passed around uh, college campuses, including my university, mm-hmm. uh, where I first encountered it. And it was the kind of thing where you go to the game group and someone had a copy of it. You don't know yeah. where they got it from, their friend had it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the guys were from our area, but it was a, it was a total... Um, uh, it was indie before I even knew what indie was. Yeah, right. It hadn't had a publisher. It was just like comics. Mm-hmm. It was stuff. so cool, and it was hand drawn and stuff. It was like yeah. uh, human occupied landfill, only not as well. oh, actually funny. <laughs> but, the, but the thing that Gerb's Goblins taught me was that um, it is possible to take a game that is designed for a feeling, concept, argument, and filter it through a rule set that is not optimized for that. And if you are clever and your feet are uh, light, you can still get there. Right? A system like GURPS is, is not fundamentally suited for for the, the, the Goblins game, which is, which ideally, I mean, if, even, if, even in Steve Jackson properties, it would have been better as a tune book than a GURPS book, yes. I think. But GURPS Goblins was so good at adapting both what is what was strong and core about goblins and the reason anyone buys GURPS into a unified whole that I think it inspired me uh, when I was, and, and not with necessarily with things like Nice Black Agents or whatever where I have a, a freer hand or the, or the original design, but something like um, when I was doing the Star Trek uh, books for Decipher and we built the Coda system, which is a perfectly good uh, uh, mank of D20 uh, with a little uh, sprinkling of old FASA track and a little bit of icon on it. But it's fundamentally a, a, a strong D20 uh, make. And knowing that GURPS Goblins existed let me 
sort of used that not so much as a model in the sense of I took a mechanic from it, but I took an approach from it. That this is how you go from this thing through the, the thicket of GURPS and emerge <laughs> on the other right. side. Avoid you know. getting dragged down. Right. Right. Uh, avoid having what happened to S. John with Black Ops. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and, and again, see him fighting the system on every page. <laughs> well, that, 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 that was not S. John. He was fighting Steve. Well, yeah. That was back when Steve read every uh, GURPS book and had <laughs> right. very strong opinions. Uh, I think Hellboy succeeded more than it did. Yeah, because that because by then Phil was the person, not Steve. Right. Phil's ritual taking place. Yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 when you look at something like Earth Goblins, um, it's sort of like uh, seeing a well-designed interstate highway uh, clover inter- junction, <laughs> right? You aren't going to build that exact clover junction because you're not building you know something outside St. Louis, but you now know what it looks like, and that it can be done, and you can look at those same sort of engineering principles and apply them to trying to fit interstellar treaty mechanics into D20, which is, or, or into CODA, which I did, or, you know, any of the other things that don't make any sense in the CODA system, I say, all right, if GURPS goblins can do it, <laughs> there, there can be a path, and I, and I could map those paths out. And, it, it, and again, it wasn't so much a specific thing as the freedom of the approach, where it's like, um, uh, you have to uh, beat the king's theology skill to kill him. Because he's the head of the Church of England. It's like, all right, on the one hand, that makes no sense. On the other hand, it's a completely legitimate use of the GURPS mechanics. And on the third hand, it gets you exactly where you want to get. Both as a hilarious, you know, meta joke and as, no, you can't shoot the fucking king, sit down. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I find most charming about GURPS goblins is that it introduced a bunch of absurdly specific skills to the GURPS canon. Yeah. So, so, so if you look in the GURPS compendium, there's uttering base coin. That's a, that's a GURPS skill forever. <laughs> well, until fourth edition. Actually. No, yeah. So I had a, a thought because we're getting close on time, right? Yeah, we've got about ten minutes. I think would it be? I was thinking about maybe if we each talked about a game that we wanted people to go look up for for a reason, like since this is kind of the obscure games panel, maybe. Send send people off with a list of obscure games that are worth looking at. That sounds good. Why don't you start? Right. <laughs> 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 I point out Jim is here, so right. There is a there is a table over there for your with looking up needs. Um, I would pick actually a game that's uh, new new again, and you actually brought a copy of it. Uh, Thousand One Nights by Meg Baker. Um, which is a fantastically gorgeous little book, but also I, uh, it is a it's another it's another game that's been really influential on me um, design wise. And basically, the, the premise is that you are a uh, you are a bunch of courtiers in the Sultan's palace, and you are uh, telling stories to each other to pass the time while you're you know all the palace life is going on. Um, but there are very strict rules about how you need to behave. So the only ways you can kind of act out, uh, either like against other people or kind of advance some kind of ambition you have or uh, try to leave the palace, that kind of stuff. The way that you advance your agendas is by casting other uh, other players' characters in roles in the stories that you are telling, and then you just go down. You can go down a, a rabbit hole of unfolding uh, stories within stories within stories. <laughs> 
Uh, so, you know, far over on the uh, kind of structured, uh, structured interact narrative interaction end of the role-playing spectrum. Uh, but again, I love it both because it's uh, just because it's a, a beautifully constructed piece of design. It's very elegant and simple, but also it does a thing which I mentioned before that I like, where it subverts a lot of expectations about how games work, like how you have you have a bunch of dice. You need your dice, the gems for the game, but it doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter what the they're dice are. Gems. Yeah, they're just gems, even or odd. That's all that matters. Um, so you have your giant. I mean, I have my bag of dice of all you know, my big nerd bag full of stuff. Uh, and you just dump it out, and then you can play. And it's just this like beautiful little moment of like taking this thing that a lot of us, you know, love this physical nature of these dice and how they look, and then t- turning it, giving it a half twist, and using it really fruitfully in the design. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would encourage you to seek that out. How about you, Cam? Uh, there's a lot of games that are post-apocalyptic, and some of them are more popular than others. I think the one that I like. Uh, huge amount right now, I haven't played it yet and I want to try it, is Atomic Highway and Colin Chapman I think wrote this book. Uh, Atomic Highway and there's a book, a supplement for it with some monsters things. it is just really cool and it, for me it has a lot of the uh, Fallout feel to it a uh, great deal of, obviously there's a huge influence from Fallout and having just played through all of Fallout 3 and then Fallout New Vegas and then all into that uh, I saw this and said well you know well, you've got a gamma world here, but that's not really the same thing. You've got a apocalypse world that's not trying for the same kind of thing, really. This thing here is just like totally balls to wall. It makes me think of uh, Car Wars, makes me think of Mad Max, makes me think of um, uh, all kinds of stuff that, that's, you know, it's got a little bit of tongue in cheek, but also it's trying to be a little bit more edgy in, in its sort of, you know, non challenging you very much way, but more like this game is about this. It's a. It's a it's that, it's that post-apocalypse you thought about when you were in the 80s and 90s and were like me, a young kid watching movies, he wasn't allowed to watch it. So. And I think it's got a fresh riff on the dice pool mechanic yeah. without you know, without going too over over the edge on that. Yeah, it's one of my group of like about five to ten games I want to pull out playing with my game group but no one's got to want to do it. So. Yep. Okay, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to talk about two games but that's because they're thematically similar. <laughs> one is Annalise, which is by Nathan, uh, and the other one is uh, Serial Homicide Unit by Cat uh, Miller. And the reason I am picking these two games is because they um, Annalise is about you play the victims of a vampire, and in Serial Homicide Unit you play the victims of a serial killer, and they are, I think they the games that make you that have made me feel the most empath empathy towards characters I'm playing ever because you know how fragile they are and that you know that there's a terrible danger that is stalking them that they could die and the stories that are told in these are all about getting to know those characters so that it's worse when it finally <laughs> happens <laughs> so I think that, that the, both of them you know, really hit that spot a serial homicide unit is one of the best serial killer games ever because the serial killer is completely irrelevant the serial killer is something that randomly strikes down a player at the table every round, basically. <laughs> Simple jokes. 
So I didn't, I, I didn't know we were going to pimp each other's games. So uh, I would have tried to pimp it. See, I, I said to myself, I'm not going to talk about Brennan's game. Okay. <laughs> because that would be untoward, but he talked about Nathan's game. <laughs> uh, so how we came to live here, which is a beautiful, beautiful, well-written uh, game by Brennan here. But uh, it's sort of based on the Anasazi myth. You're, you're playing people that uh, uh, are... are part of a culture that has very, very distinctive life ways and very distinctive senses of right and wrong, and there's a hierarchy of sin within this this world that is uh, both well-realized uh, and uh, vitally important to the operation of the game. It's just beautiful in play. Uh, it has two game masters, one which represents and, and advocates for everything outside of your village, and the other who represents and advocates for everything inside your village, which are sort of traditional male and female roles. It's just great. It's a beautiful game, and I highly recommend it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I would like to say uh, that if you are looking for a master class in sort of contemporary scenario design, uh, ideally to a, uh, a pre-established narrative, uh, you can do a good deal worse than to look at uh, Jason's adaptation of <laughs> Polish Officer, which is, I think, still up there on the internet, right? Yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, based on an Alan First novel, which is a terrific novel by itself. It basically just sort of plays out the questions that occur in the course of that novel. and It's called Last Train Out of Warsaw. Last Train Out of Warsaw is the name of, 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 your, of, of the scenario. And if you're looking for top-notch scenario design, just nothing, you know... It's like a Mies van der Rohe building, just no, no curlicues, no extra things, <laughs> just right there. I'm not a giant Mies van der Rohe fan, but when he actually hits an A, he hits an A, and uh, Jason obviously has a much better track record than van der Rohe, but, but this specific thing is a, is a great example of that school uh, uh, of, of adventure design. And then the polar opposite of that, which is the game that is all about impression and... Uh, encourages the sort of archetypal recognition of stories' existence coming up out of the players is Sweet Agatha by the lovely and talented Kevin Allen, Jr., uh, here in the audience, uh, which is a game that I don't know if you are familiar with, but it, uh, it involves the disappearance of Agatha, and you go to find... You, you, uh, one player goes to find her. It's a one-on-one, one-GM, one-player game, and you basically physically destroy the game in the course of playing it. You snip out pieces of it and write on it and all kinds of other things, which means that the game not only feels like a built artifact, it is actually a, a built artifact. There is a lot of really powerful mojo in the physical design of it. The, the art is uh, archetypal without being um, fey, and the story can be literally anything from alien abduction to serial killers to a girl who just decided she doesn't want any more of your bullshit and took off. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really strong thing for finding the story that you were thinking about telling anyway but didn't know you wanted to. <coughs> so between Sweet Agatha and Last Train Out of Warsaw, if you can't design a role-playing game scenario, then back to the remedial class, children. I don't know anything about role-playing games. <laughs> But I'm surprised that there's one that I have played that wasn't really mentioned in this panel. Dungeons and Dragons? Can you tell us more about it? Seems like it? It, there's lots of versions of it. It's It's obscure, too. It's quite obscure. Well, they, they, they keep trying to fix it. I mean, it, they'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's awesome. They must only be making it better. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, I, we, we don't have the. Uh, we, we it's, it's, it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. Well, thanks everybody Thank for you. coming. Thank you. Thank you.